ARE Study Guide Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the ARE Study Guide Podcast. Today we are going to talk about building codes. Codes. This is for the programming and analysis test. So this is going to be the very basics of building codes, all the stuff that you consider during the programming of a building. Standard of care. I used to think that architects had to be perfect. What happens if we mess up? Oh no but that is not the case. Standard of care says that perfection is not required or even expected of an architect, but an architect is expected to do as well as another architect would with the same amount of information and resources. Model codes. Model codes are developed by private organizations and then states and local governments adopt them. Model codes are not made for any one particular area. They're made to be applicable anywhere. It's important to realize that with model codes, they're establishing the least acceptable risk and the minimum safety standards for building occupants. All right, so building codes. Why do we have them? They exist so that we can protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. The building code most widely used in America right now is the International Building Code, or the IBC. The IBC was developed in 2000 by the International Code Council. The IBC is a prescriptive code rather than performance-based. This means that the code has specific materials and methods that are required to meet code. However, you can deviate from the prescribed materials and methods if you test a construction assembly and prove that it can pass a performance test. In addition to the IBC, there's the International Residential Code, the IRC. The IRC is for detached one and two family residences and townhomes that are not over three stories high. The International Existing Building Code applies to existing buildings being repaired, altered, or added to. So there's a lot of other model codes. Um, There's the National Electric Code, There's the International Mechanical Code, the International Plumbing Code, International Energy Conservation Code, International Green Construction Code. There's a lot of codes. Um, If you're not familiar with these, I highly recommend looking into the most common codes. Uh, Just have an idea of what they are, just for your own reference. With IBC, you have to know a few basic things about the building because that'll affect the code. That's going to be the construction type, the occupancy type, and if the building is sprinklered. Those three things are really going to affect a lot of the code requirements. Construction types. So for construction types, the IBC categorizes five primary construction types. Type one is fire resistive. Type 2 is protected or unprotected, non-combustible. Type 3 is combustible or ordinary construction. Ordinary construction is typically going to have like brick or concrete brick walls with wooden roofs and floors. Type 4 is heavy timber. Type 5 is wood frame. Maximum building height. Based on the construction type, 
the occupancy, and if there's a sprinkler, that's going to determine how tall the building can be. The height of a building is measured from the ground plane to the highest roof surface. If the land slopes, the grade plane is considered the lowest point between the building and the property line, or six feet away from the building, whichever is closer. Story height is measured between the stories of one finished floor to the next finished floor. In the IBC, table 504.3 will show you the maximum building height. Table 504.4 will tell you the maximum number of stories a building can be. The maximum allowable building area. The maximum allowable building area is based on the gross floor area. The gross floor area is the floor area excluding the thickness of the exterior walls. Table 506.2 gives you the maximum allowable building area. This is going to be based on the occupancy type, the construction type, and the type of sprinkler system. Egress requirements. An important thing to consider during the early analysis of a building, especially if you're dealing with an existing building that you're modeling, is going to be egress requirements. Means of egress is defined as a continuous, unobstructed path of exit from any occupied portion of the building to a public way. A public way is a street, alley, or land opened outside air, which leads to a public street. It has to be at least 10 feet clear vertically. Building egress is the route that building occupants take to reach a safe place during a building emergency. There are three components of building egress. First is the exit access. Exit access is the unprotected or minimally protected area that you start at. The exit access ends when you reach the exit. The exit is the portion of the means of egress system between the exit access and the exit discharge. The exit is a protected route in the egress system. Exits must be made of fire rated assemblies and continuously protected until the occupants reach the exit discharge. Exits include fire-rated stairs, protected passageways, and areas of refuge within the building. Exit discharge is the portion of the egress system that connects the exit to the public way or place of safety. When you're in a building, you start at the exit access, wherever you are in the building, whatever space you use within a building, the exit access goes until you reach the protected area. The protected area is known as the exit. You stay within that protected area until you get to the exit discharge. The exit discharge can include the interior portion of a building after you leave the exit stair and the exterior portions of a building, including sidewalks, yards, and ramps that lead you to a large outdoor open space. It is assumed when you're talking about the exit discharge that when you're in the exit discharge, you are able to see your place of safety. When a door opens directly from an occupied space to the exterior, that's known as a direct exit. The common path of egress travel is the path an occupant takes from the furthest point on a building level until two separate paths of travel to two different exits are available. So the common path of egress travel is within the exit access. The common path of egress travel is where you reach two options to get to two different exits. Corridors are dedicated exit access components that connect occupied spaces to exits. Corridors must be separated from the occupied spaces they serve. Depending on the occupancy, corridors may need to be fire rated. When two means of egress are required in a building, which is 
almost all the time, unless you have a really small building, you cannot have a dead end. A dead end is defined as 20 feet unless the building has sprinklers, in which case you're allowed to have a dead end of 50 feet for a corridor. An exit passageway is a horizontal egress path that is protected. An egress court is the portion of the exit discharge at ground level that extends from an exit to the public way. A refuge area is a protected area within a building where occupants can retreat without using stairs. Refuge areas are required in care facilities, detention centers, and in tall buildings where residents are either unable to freely exit or where it's not practical for them to do so. Every room in a building needs a means of emergency egress. Small rooms may only require one. Large rooms will require two or more. Each means of egress should be sized so that if one egress is blocked, the remaining egress capacity is no less than half of the required egress capacity. Travel distance is measured from the furthest point in a space to the start of the exit component. Travel distance is usually measured with paths that run parallel to the walls, taking into account the furniture that will be in the building when it's occupied. The maximum travel distance will vary by occupancy if there are sprinklers. Within exits and exit discharges, the travel distance is unlimited, as is in the case of high-rise buildings. Elevators cannot be part of the building's egress system, except as an egress for disabled persons. Occupant evacuation elevators are elevators designed to resist fire, smoke, and water. Occupant evacuation elevators can be used in high-rise buildings to count as an extra stairway. Occupancy groups. All right, so now let's talk about occupancy groups. Based on how the building will be used, the building code is going to set different requirements for the safety requirements. The function of the building or a particular space will determine its occupancy group. The occupancy group will set the requirements for the size of the building, the egress, and the type of construction that's allowed. Sometimes a building's function is hard to define, in which case the code says that the occupancy shall be defined as the occupancy that it most closely resembles by the number and density of the occupants, the type of activities, and similar life and safety risks. The final decision for classifying a building's occupancy will be made by the local building officials. Buildings with mixed uses can have different occupancies within the building. The different occupancies can either be separated, non-separated, accessory, or incidental occupancies. For a non-separated occupancy, that means that two occupancies are allowed to be adjacent without fire separation. The building height, area, and fire protection requirements for non-separated occupancies are going to be determined by the more restrictive of the two occupancies. A separated occupancy is when two occupancies are required to have fire-rated assemblies separating them. The individual spaces are going to follow the height and size restrictions for their individual occupancies without affecting the adjacent spaces requirements. An accessory occupancy is a space adjacent to the primary occupancy and is less than 10% of the floor area for that building level. An accessory occupancy is classified as part of the larger occupancy. An incidental use is a space that has unique fire or life safety hazards. To be considered incidental, the area cannot exceed 10% of the floor area for that level. Incidental uses are going to require fire and smoke separation specific for their use. Incidental spaces could be laundry rooms, furnace rooms, laboratories, etc. There are 10 types of occupancy groups. Group A, assembly. Group B, business. Group E, educational. Group F, 
Factory and Industrial, Group H, High Hazard, Group I, Institutional, Group M, Mercantile, Group R, Residential, Group S, Storage, Group U, Utility and Miscellaneous. We're going to go over all of these groups a little more in depth. Um, note that in the IBC, when it says less than 50 people, that means 49 or fewer. Less than 50 means 49 or fewer. 50 or more means 50 or more. Group A, assembly, is defined as having 50 or more people gathered together in a relatively small space for civic, political, social, religious, recreation, or food and drink consumption. Assembly spaces for 50 people or more contained in buildings classified as a different occupancy will need to classify the assembly space separately as a group A. Small assembly spaces with under 50 occupants do not have to have a separate assembly occupancy classification. They can just be classified with the overall occupancy of the group. Educational facilities like schools that have assembly spaces do not need to classify their assembly space with an assembly occupancy. Assembly type spaces that have less than 50 occupants and are smaller than 750 square feet are classified as group B, business. Assembly spaces can be classified as group A1, which is assembly spaces for the viewing of performance arts or motion pictures, usually with fixed seating. Group A2 is where food and drinks are consumed. Group A2 is assumed to have loose chairs and tables, which can potentially hinder people that are trying to exit during an emergency. Group A3 is an assembly area that is not an A1 or an A2. Group A4 are assembly areas used for viewing indoor sports. Group A5 are assembly areas for viewing or playing outdoor sports. Group B, business. This includes offices, professional services, and the storage spaces for these buildings that hold their records. This also includes ambulatory care facilities. Ambulatory care facilities are healthcare facilities where the patients are generally mobile and capable of self-preservation in the event of an emergency. This includes outpatient clinics and doctor's offices. Patients can be under temporary anesthesia and it can still count as a group B. More intensive procedures such as laser eye surgery consider, are considered to render the patients incapable of self-preservation and thus cannot be included in group B. Educational facilities past grade 12, like universities or continuing education schools, are considered group B. Tutoring centers that are not located on school property, food facilities that don't have dining areas and are under 2,500 square feet are also group B. Group B does not include retail. Retail is group M. Group E, educational. Educational facilities with six or more students, grade 12 or below. This includes daycare facilities with six or more students that are over two and a half years old. And this includes religious educational facilities with 100 or more occupants. Group F, factory and industrial. Factories are considered spaces that are not public, meaning that the building users 
are aware of the hazards within the factory. This includes places where you manufacture, you fabricate, you repair, or you package things. Group F is classified into two categories. Group F1 is moderate hazard, and that's where you deal with combustible materials. Group F2 is low hazard, and that's where you deal with materials that are non-combustible. Group H, high hazard. Group H occupancies are classified as H1 through H5, and these are all different based on the types and qualities of materials being used. H1 means that the materials are at risk of explosion. H2 means the materials can accelerate fire. H3 means that the materials support combustion or are hazardous for occupants. H4 are materials that are highly corrosive or highly toxic. And H5 is where semiconductors are fabricated or research facilities that use them. Group I, institutional. Institutional facilities are where occupants cannot fully care for themselves. Group I-1 is defined as having 17 or more people in a residential facility with 24-hour custodial care. Custodial care is defined as caretaking for everyday tasks, such as assistance with cooking, bathing, and medication. Group I-1 includes assisted living facilities and halfway houses. Group I-2 is six or more people under 24-hour supervised medical care. People in Group I-2 are assumed to be unable to help themselves in an emergency without assistance. This can include nursing homes, foster care, medical facilities that are not hospitals, hospitals, emergency rooms, and psychiatric stabilization spaces. Group I-3 is when you have six or more people under 24-hour restraint or security, such as a prison or a mental hospital. Group I-4 is when you have six or more people under supervised custodial care for less than 24 hours. This includes child and adult daycare facilities. Group M, mercantile, is the displaying and selling of retail and wholesale merchandise. If there is a large storage space associated with the retail space, the storage area is classified as Group S. Group R, residential, can be classified as Group R1, which is when you have transient occupants, that are, will occupy a space for less than 30 days. Group R2 is when you have buildings with three or more dwellings. Group R3 is single-family residences and duplexes. Group R4 are assisted living facilities with 6 to 16 occupants. Group S, storage, is storage of materials that do not qualify as hazardous that would trigger the Group H occupancy. Group U, utility and miscellaneous are spaces occupied sparingly for short periods of time such as agricultural buildings carports private garages greenhouses barns sheds tanks towers fences over six feet tall and retaining walls okay so that was a little rundown on the basics of the ibc i really hope it wasn't terribly boring I hope I didn't lose you. I hope my voice was engaging enough to keep you awake, especially if you're driving. I don't want to cause anyone to fall asleep. So yeah, I think for the programming and analysis test, that is definitely a good rundown of what you need to be aware of for the IBC. Um, a big part of it is the egress. So if you're not comfortable with egress requirements, 
look more into them. The Building Code Illustrated book by Francis Ching is a great resource for all of the egress stuff. Those definitions are going to be really important for understanding the different parts of an egress system. As always, if you have any questions, any feedback, or want to say anything to me at all, feel free to reach out on the arestudyguidepodcast.com. And there's a contact page on there and you can send me a message that way. If you want my written notes related to the building code and all of the programming and analysis exam, you can check out the arestudyguidepodcast.com to find a link to get that resource. I hope you're enjoying your day, enjoying your studying process. Enjoy it, study well, and you will do fine. Until next time, bye.